On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking to another. Last week, we talked to one of the parties interested in building an entertainment district downtown. Well, today we're talking to another of the parties, PJ Mercanti from the Carmen's Group, which is more than just Carmen's Group. Lots of people involved in this one. Uh, they're going to be presenting at City Council. We heard, we hear first what their proposal is and some of the questions around that. We're also talking as a follow-up to yesterday's podcast, we're talking about the freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom of news, all that kind of thing. With this proposal, the government is now walking back from to license news. At least they say they're walking back from it, but we're not going to talk about the minister or the government per se. My bigger question is, who are the glitterati, who are the intelligentsia who are on this panel who decided this would be a good idea? And what does it say about that part of society, that this would be a default position, that this would be a good thing. We'll discuss that. And then we're going to be chatting about medical equipment. Who pays? I think we know who pays for medical equipment, right? To buy for hospitals? Eh, You might be surprised. Who pays for medical equipment? Not who you think. We'll explain. Stay with us. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. We've been talking a lot about downtown. That's been the discussion point for years now in this city. What do we do about our downtown? How do we fix up the downtown? Well, last week we had Mario Frankovic on the show. Uh, you may remember he was speaking on behalf of the Vrancor Group, which is one of the groups that is tr- bidding to try to develop the entertainment district that has long been talked about. And when he was on, I said we would endeavor to get the other groups. Well, at the other time, at that moment, it was the other group, uh, the Carmen's Group, that was also putting forward a proposal, which will happen tomorrow at the city's General Issues Committee. Well, today we do that. P.J. Mercanti is the man behind this, uh, behind the idea called the Hamilton Urban Precinct Entertainment Group. He joins us now. P.J., thanks for doing this today. Oh, thank you, Scott. Uh, first things first, I think you may at some point have to change that name because Hoopeg doesn't exactly roll off the tongue. <laughs> no, it doesn't. <laughs> and it's actually going through potentially another iteration where we're adding the word arts in there. So it, we're liking it likening it to an arts and entertainment district. So we definitely may work on the, uh, on the name, but the, uh, the spirit of it is still, is still there. Well, let's go through, and, and I know we don't have all the time in the world, but in brush, short brush strokes and, and in, in the Reader's Digest version, you would be proposing what then for the downtown? So we're proposing a, an integrated uh, development. And, you know, for years, Scott, our group and, and members of our, of our growing consortium have expressed an interest in looking at solutions for the arena, for the convention center. And simply, we want to bring forward to city council, and we'll be doing that tomorrow at, uh, at the GIC, where we'll be putting together a presentation and giving a delegation, uh, our plan and our vision for downtown. It includes a renovation to the existing First Ontario Centre. It includes a scenario where a new convention centre is built on the site of the city centre, the Hamilton City Centre, formerly the Eaton Centre, and a redevelopment of the site of the existing convention centre that would be integrated with the art gallery, you know, play into the the concert hall that's right there. And so it's a multifaceted vision. We're fortunate to be aligned with some of Hamilton's finest institutions and organizations, uh, Leuna Pension Fund, Bengate Capital. We just added Paletta International, uh, Angelo and Paul and Michael Paletta and their family. 
Uh, we're working with Meridian Credit Union. We're working with the new owner of the city center, Daryl Furston of Innate Developments, working with the Art Gallery. So Carmen's Group, we're just one player at the table uh, pushing this vision forward. And, uh, and so we're excited to present the vision tomorrow to council. We look forward to hearing what they have to say. And ultimately, this is designed to be a win-win-win for the city of Hamilton, the taxpayer of Hamilton, and our private sector partners. If I can break down, and again, I know the details are much more detailed than this. I don't want to simplify this, but if I can break sure. down the differences that I can, uh, the very obvious differences between yours and the Vrancor Group's bid, and there are a bunch of them. Uh, one of them is yours involves uh, condos or residential development, correct, at this point? That's correct. And yeah, your and, so. and the convention center would be significantly different. They want to build on top of the current convention center. You want to build an entirely different convention center. That's correct. And one of the big issues that we, obviously right now, Carmen's group is, is running the existing convention center. And, and the reality is, is that for a lot of the big uh, association groups and, and national and provincial uh, events that we're chasing, they're saying that the, the ballroom configuration and the exhibition space is too small. So this is an opportunity for us to get it right and to set up and to build a new convention center that's uh, got a bigger exhibition room, a bigger ballroom that can then host more delegates that can then fill more hotels in Hamilton. So this is part of a much bigger play to future-proof Hamilton. You know, we recognize that there's a lot of interested parties uh, that want to build more hotels in Hamilton, and we need to fill those hotels. And one great way to fill them is with conventions and events. And, and you know, if we have a bigger convention center, then that just means we'll be able to fill uh, more people in those hotels. So that's the spirit of, of the new convention center design and build. We've had discussions with uh, MPP Donaskelly's office. We've had discussions with uh, MP Philomena Tassi's office. Both have been very responsive and supportive of moving this initiative forward with their respective governments. So we feel confident that we can deliver on this. And, and then the idea that we had is to build up on the site of the current convention center and create a really unique um, made in Hamilton residential concept that integrates with the art gallery. It helps the art gallery expand, you know, with their plans for the future. So it's a bit, that's, I think the big biggest core difference between the two proposals. Uh, PJ, when I was talking to Mario Frankovic from the Vrancor Group, one of the things I said to them about my skepticism with his bid, and I would say the same thing to you, is that he talked about they're putting in or proposing a $200 million investment of private money that would go in. It's a huge amount of money that would go into doing all this. And for them, I said, how do you possibly get a return on your investment? I believe as a private investor, you're entitled to a profit. You're entitled to make your money back. But how with that amount of money going into this, can you possibly get that back? Same question for you. How do you possibly, if your yours would be an expensive proposition as well, how do you make that money back? So simply, Scott, our model is predicated on what Councillor Marula stated around being the city being able to offer up land and regulatory authority. So this is where it's critically important that development happen, you know, as part of the overall precinct and that the development profits associated with, um, you know, the build outs that they be, that some of those proceeds be put towards, you know, reinvestment. And, and our model, 
you know, we, we lean into that concept of land and regulatory authority. And obviously, we would love to flush out further, you know, with the city, our ability to, 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 to make it come to life. But it's, you know, we've got an internal model um, that's being vetted, you know, by Fengate Capital and our other partners who are, you know, who are very well versed in, in uh, private public partnerships, etc. And, and our model contemplates no impact to the levy. If anything, it, it contributes to the levy. It sees an investment in these in these facilities um, where the city does not have to draw upon its its reserves. It doesn't have to take you know take loans out. So this is where we want to be able to to you know work with the city in flushing out this financial model because in our in our opinion it is a win win for the city. You know it is a bit proprietary in nature, and so this is where we want to better understand you know what the process looks like so that that way we can share in confidence with the city what we're planning on doing but our model truly does contemplate an injection of capital into the facilities no taxpayer dollars going into them uh, and and it's a really unique uh, unique model that we believe in that that has been used in other jurisdictions and that ultimately leverages the development outside of the you know and, and as part of the um, the facilities no taxpayer dollars going into this. A moment ago, though, you said that you've been talking to uh, Donna Skelly and um, Philomena Tassi. Would there be taxpayer, that's municipal so, taxes, correction. would there be federal no, and provincial no, taxes? Correct. That is correct. I, I, I stand corrected. No local taxpayer dollars going into it. So, so we would certainly look at leveraging federal and provincial dollars that, you know, that may well go to another community if we don't aggressively push and advocate for this so we would just want to but to to go back to your original question no hamiltonian city of hamilton levy tax dollars would be going towards uh this this plan in our financial model could yours be done if the province and the federal government say no we're not interested in giving grants can it still be done without their money so so there is modeling that we have that if just say one of those levels of government steps up that you know the plan may be pivoted in scope but still feasible and possible so you know there have been scenarios in other cities where just the feds have come up uh come forward with money uh and 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 so models can work based on that and so we and this is where our group plans to move at a feverishly quick pace to gobble up this opportunity you know that's that the various levels of the government are, are offering and 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 we you know we hope to have that opportunity to see what is possible and this is where scott we're at a very unique time in the in the city's trajectory where we have an opportunity right now to reinvent the downtown to set up the city for the next generation you know with all the respect to the current arena and the convention center they've been good to us as a city you know we've had them for 30 40 years they've lived a very good useful life but now it's time to figure out and reimagine what does the future of downtown look like. And so this is where we're at a unique opportunity now. We shouldn't rush it too quickly. We have a chance to get it right. And we have a chance to accommodate the needs of various constituencies and stakeholders in Hamilton, the art gallery, the development community, various cultural communities. So this is where we want to have an integrated Made in Hamilton solution put forward and, uh, and we look forward to working with council and, and making this come to life. Can you apply, can you get those grants or can you apply for those grants that you would want and that you would need before the city 
gives you this job or do you have to wait for the city to give you the go ahead and then apply for them and hope that you can get them? Well, no, we've started the conversation already. So I think that there is, you know, that, that the, you know, MPP Skelly's office and, and uh, MP Tassie's office and MP Bertina's office, you know, we can get the ball rolling in initiating these conversations, and they, that has happened. So we are, the wheels are in motion. And so I think we just need to push forward as if, as if this is happening and, and get an understanding on, on the timing from the feds and the province, because that would ultimately dictate our plans locally. And this is where we need to better understand from the city the pace that it wants to move at, if it wants to move extremely quick or at a, you know, is it a three-month window, a six-month window, et cetera. So the more information that we're able to extract from, you know, the city around process will help us to dictate our planning and how quick we need to move. But there has been precedent, you know, just look at down this down the QEW uh, in Niagara Falls. Uh, this, the Niagara Falls Convention Center was funded from, with federal dollars, provincial dollars, and the, the development community and city of Niagara stepped up. So, so we've started discussions with them on how, how, you know, what does that process look like? But there's been precedent across the country for what we're planning. So this is not as if we're trying to reinvent the wheel. There is precedent. And similar to schools and hospitals, there are government monies and funds available for initiatives like this, so long as there's a need and a business case, et cetera, which we do have. And the unique thing about our proposal is that there's a tremendous amount of private sector development attached to this. So I got to jump in. G- G- PG, I got to jump in, unfortunately. Sorry. I got to no let problem. you get back to your dinner. I know I pulled you out of dinner, and I got to get to a break. No we, we will hear lots about this tomorrow at GIC, I'm sure. I really appreciate you taking the time today. Thanks for doing this. You got it. Thanks. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. You heard a discussion that I had with Jonathan Kay from the National Post. We were chatting about this uh, just, well, I'll call it disastrous. I mean, it was as a public relations thing, it was just a mess for the federal government because you've got the heritage minister who's a rookie politician who's on question period on CTV addressing this panel that was put together of seven people to come up to uh, as a way to modernize the broadcast industry to modernize the CRTC. And they come forward with 97 recommendations. It was like the the theses on Wittenberg door once upon a time, only like 500 years later. Anyway, they come forward with these recommendations and among them is the recommendation that the federal government should be licensing and regulating websites that provide content, including news. So that the federal government would be the, essentially, the big brother overseer to make sure that news organizations are honest and, and trustworthy and all these kind of words they throw out there all the time, which of course is a, is a terrifying scenario to anyone who is halfway intelligent and has half of a brain and appreciates any level of freedom of thought and speech in this country. Because there may be websites that offer news or fake news or whatever kind of news you want that you may vigorously disagree with, but you still, I think most of us still would prefer, still would want that possibility that someone is going to put out fake news 
but we have freedom compared to the idea that some overseeing group, some star chamber is going to decide what news is fake, what news isn't fake, what news we can trust and decide who can read what. That very quickly becomes Pravda. That very, and you know, you can say I'm overstating it. I mentioned it last night. Show me the one example anywhere in the world. Go ahead. I, I, any, send me a note, radley at 900chml.com. I'm happy to hear from you, but give me the one example of a government that has taken control over what you can read and show me the one example ever in the history of the world that has not led to the government cracking down and squeezing what is legal and not legal and doesn't become more of a censorship body. Anytime a government has decided to take control of intellectual property, of what you can read, of what you can hear, of what you can see, it has always, in every single case led to a crackdown to fit whatever the narrative is that that particular government wants you to hear. And sometimes I'll even, I'll even allow for a little, I don't know, lightness here. I'll even say sometimes the government may not even be doing it maliciously, although I find that hard to believe, but let's say they're not, but it's the worldview that they bring to what's online that they will believe a certain government, a certain sensibility is going to believe and and think a certain way so that the things that they believe they read, hey, that's true. The other stuff, that's not true. We got to stop that. It's a dangerous, dangerous thing for a government to start getting involved in this. So for the heritage minister, even to get caught in this fiasco on on the air, like it's stunning to me that he was naive enough, silly enough, careless enough, honest enough heaven forbid, that he let himself get into this mess. Even if he walked it back the next day, which he did, although there are still questions about what exactly he walked back. So we have, what we have here, to recap, what we have here is a government whose heritage minister, whose guy is in charge of this particular file, really being unclear about whether or not he supports the idea of, of a government oversight body on what you can read and what you can't read online. He probably wouldn't say it in so many words because that would sound like it's big brother. Well, that's exactly what it is. That's exactly what it is. He wouldn't want to word it like that. No politician, I don't think, would want to stand there and say, oh yes, we really want to crack down and make sure you read only appropriate stuff. But that's exactly what they're talking about here. And I hope that it was a misspeak on his part, not a slip of honest admission coming out of him that he had to backtrack only because things blew up in his face. But here's the bigger issue to me, besides the fact that that's a little scary. The bigger issue to me as I thought about it yesterday and as we got talking about it with Jonathan Kay on the air was this recommendation came from this panel, this panel of seven people who are all intelligent people. Six of them, of the seven members, six are lawyers. Three of them have a past or past connections to the CRTC, the governing body of broadcasting in this country. Four of them are university professors. And that's where I really got thinking about this. How is it that a panel of otherwise bright people, how is it that a panel of otherwise bright people would have 
a conclusion drawn that this would be a good idea, right? It's one thing for one person who has a slip of the tongue or a moment of honesty or thinks that way, but to have a panel of seven intelligent people who get together and say, no, we as a group recommend this. And we think it's a really good idea for the government to be overseeing what you can read and what you can see. And as I'm looking at this and think a majority of these people are university professors. What, what does that say about the sensibility, the philosophy, the way things are going on university campuses in a lot of places, that that's the acceptable default position that we believe that the government or some agency should have control over what you think and how you think and what should be allowed to be spoken and seen and whatever else. That to me is very frightening and very illustrative of something. You know, there's some of the things they came up with were fine. Again, we talked about it last night. If you want to tax Google or Facebook a bit because they infringe on Canadian companies and what they're doing, you say, you know, if you're going to operate in this country, you get to pay some fair share. I think a lot of people would be okay with that. But the idea, what we're talking about is the idea that has gotten most of the attention in this because largely because the heritage minister initially seemed to back up what they were saying until he walked it back, probably under immense pressure from his government who was getting hammered by this. The idea that we should have government oversight, regulations, and licensing of news operations. Now, he says no, but I'm going back not to him. Whether he made a mistake or didn't make a mistake, whether he misspoke or spoke accurately and just has had to walk it back again because of the blowback, the fact is there are seven intelligent people, six of them who are lawyers, four university professors who somehow thought, and these are the the glitterati of the country. These are the brilliant people of the country. These are the people who, based on the fact that four of them are university professors, represent a certain segment, apparently, of our society. And they saw clearly nothing wrong with this. They recommended this. And again, as I thought about that, leave the politician out of it. He may or may not have any idea what he's talking about. He may just be a talking monkey who, talking parrot, who's just been told, here, you just got to tell us what the, what the company line is, what the party line is, just blah, 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 speak whatever we tell you. He may not have even thought this thing through that well. But these people are the ones who brought this thing forward. They brought this thing forward, which means they're comfortable with this. And it makes me wonder, again, when four of these people and a majority are university professors, and we've seen this kind of stuff. Do you remember a year or two ago? Maybe it's more than that now. It seems like a year or two ago. Uh, The Lindsay Shepard story at Wilfrid Laurier, where she spoke to a class and showed clips of Jordan Peterson. Jordan Peterson is not in jail. He is a free man. He is entitled to speak his mind. She showed clips in a class talking about use of language. And remember what happened to her? She got brought in front of a panel because she was apparently spewing hate, they decided. And she was a a, a teaching assistant and they tried to get rid of her. And it was only because she recorded the interviews and the conversations in that panel that she didn't get destroyed. When that came public, suddenly the school looked awful. Well, where are we now when the places of higher learning that are supposed to be the places where you have freedom to think, freedom to have different ideas, freedom to challenge the established thought, when four of the seven people who are on this panel who believe, clearly believe that it's a good idea to have government deciding what you should think, where are we on campuses then? 
Where are we in the legal field? Surely, surely some of the lawyers who were on this committee, when they thought about this idea that we would have government deciding what you can see and what you can hear and what you can think, maybe not what you can think, but lead you that direction. Surely somebody spoke up and said, um, hello, rest of panel, this might be against our charter of rights. There might be a problem here. We may, this may be something that just leads to an immediate lawsuit, which of course it would, of course it would, as it should. But my goodness, we seemed, these are people who were handpicked to be on this panel and there seems to be this very concerning, in my mind, view that is obviously held in certain corners of this country that it is a better situation that a government makes sure that you're looked after, that a government makes sure you only hear the right things, which can only imply one thing, and that is you, the average Canadian person, cannot be trusted to use your discretion, to use your brain, to decide what is or isn't true. If somebody posts something that's fake, you are such a moron, you are such a dim-witted idiot that you are going to fall for anything people post. And if someone says something that's not true, you have no hope of wading through that and deciding that it's true or not. Only we, the brilliant, and only the government, the good and powerful government, would be able to save you from yourself because otherwise you, the intellectual boob, is incapable of handling such a thing. Really? I mean, is that really the position that we want to be having in this country? I, I, I think people are way smarter than that. I think people are capable, not every person granted, of course, but I think people as a rule are capable of wandering through the wilderness of news by themselves and deciding what's true or not checking second sources, looking and seeing if that story exists somewhere else online, seeing if it's been debunked or if it's true. I think people are capable of this. I don't think we need a government or the people that government would choose who they believe represent the intelligentsia who clearly believe the same way. This is this to me, man, this, this story, thank goodness the minister walked it back. Thank goodness the prime minister has says this is not going to be happening. But this should never have been a discussion point in the first place because any panel we would choose of intelligent people should never, ever in this country have come forward with a proposal like this or a recommendation like this. And quite frankly, it's scary that we choose panels that would do this. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to talk about this piece that Steve Buist wrote. Uh, Steve Buist, as many of you know, most of you probably know, um, a guy who has, uh, he's an investigative reporter with the Hamilton Spectator, has won multitudinous awards for his work, particularly with the Code Red series that has really become the outline for healthcare um, and the outline, the, the, the driving force behind changes in healthcare in this city, talking about health and wealth and the connection between the two of them. Well, uh, he wrote yesterday about something that I had not considered until reading. And then I went, oh, how did I not think of this? Hamilton Health Sciences is renewing its diagnostic imaging equipment. And that is a move that's going to cost something in the neighborhood of $270 million. But this money is not going to come from the health ministry because it doesn't pay for things like this. Hadn't thought of that. 
This money is going to be coming from charity, from donations. And in his piece that you can read online, Giving Until It Hurts, Offloading Health and Social Services onto Hamilton Charitable Organizations, Steve is asking why so many capital purchases for hospitals and charities have to be paid for by fundraising. Steve Buse joins me now. Steve, thanks for doing this today. Hello, Steve. I'm here. There you go. Sorry, I couldn't hear you. Now I can hear you. Now we're all good. Maybe we need some fundraising for a microphone. (laughs) Um, So am I... I had not realized this. Am I the only one who's naive and alone in this one here? Or have you heard from other people that it hadn't dawned on them that this was the situation too? Uh, yeah, I don't think it's something that's widely known. And, and uh, it's not something that's unique to Hamilton. I mean, this is the way it is across the province in, in Ontario. Um, when it comes to, you know, big pieces of equipment for hospitals, that doesn't come from uh, the Ontario Health Ministry. It comes from uh, essentially, hospitals having to tap into its foundation, and the foundation gets its money from, you know, don't big, you know, in some cases well-heeled donors, and in some cases just you know little folks giving here and there. And it's the same for things like affordable housing. Uh, a lot of charities are now the ones that are building and operating uh, affordable housing or subsidized housing units. Uh, you know, homeless shelters, hospices, uh, food banks meal programs. I mean, those are things that are being run essentially by charities with charitable donations. Is, and it's, I don't think people know that. No, I, well, I didn't. And I'm wondering, has this, like, has this been going on for a while or is this brand new? No, it, it, it's been going on for a while. And, you know, as I, I said in the piece, you know, it really raises the question, you know, why are we offloading our responsibilities onto the backs of charities rather than onto the backs of all taxpayers? Um, don't get me wrong, I'm not in any way against charities or, or people that are willing to give up their money. I think that's great. But I think there's a bigger question here, which is, why are we doing this? And, and why are we putting things that are for the benefit of all people onto the backs of a select few? Well, I want to get to the tax question, because that's obviously the driver, I think, behind a lot of this in just a moment. But when you think of this, before, just before we get there, the idea then that a hospital is a giant fundraising machine would imply that the best fundraisers are going to end up with the best hospitals. Is it, does one plus one equal two? Absolutely. And, you know, that's something that, uh, um, you know, when I was speaking to Rob McIsaac, the CEO of, of Hamilton Health Sciences, you know, I mean, when you're in Toronto, you've got a large pool of well-heeled donors um, who can make those commitments. If you live in a smaller area or a rural area, for example, does it make any sense at all? Doesn't it sound ridiculous that, uh, you know, those hospitals might not have the same opportunity to have equipment when the people that are in those communities are just as sick as the people mm. in well-off communities? I mean, well, yeah, and, and it certainly, it changes, I think, how we may look at the sunshine list when that comes out in a few months. I think it comes out usually in about March or April. And if you're now looking at the CEO or the people who are running certain hospitals, if you can hire somebody who is a whiz at extracting money from charitable givers, uh, that person may actually be worth those big dollars. And under these circumstances, if you can find someone who can get millions and millions of dollars, maybe they're worth the kind of money that we scoff at often. Yeah. And, and I don't think we ask the question, why is this? Like, why is it this way? And, and, you know, to take it a step further, why are we pitting charitable organizations essentially against each other mm. in pursuit of charitable dollars that are actually being used 
to run and fund programs that really, I think, a lot of people would say, well, that's really the responsibility of a government. And a government is really nothing more than a, a collection of all of us. And, you know, so, uh, and then what happens if, um, you know, a certain charity is a little more attractive to a donor? I mean, you know, people want to have their, and I'm not, I'm not faulting people, but, you know, people want to have their names on things like hospitals and cancer centers. Um, you know, there's not a lineup of people who want their name on a homeless shelter or a food bank. And yeah, it is definitely, uh, I hate to use this term, but it's the one that works. It's less sexy to be on something like that as opposed to having your name on the wall of a hospital or a wing of a hospital or something. Uh, you quote in your story the guy who runs the Good Shepherd Center, and he says this, and this is a quote, more and more stuff is going on at charitable organizations under the guise that taxpayers can't afford it anymore. Uh, which, as you say, ultimately makes this story a, a, this is my words now again, not his, it's a tax debate. So should we be paying more for stuff that we want when we're already, a lot of people say, taxed way beyond where we should be? But are we, though? I mean, really, that's that's the, the, the question. I, I think that's the brainwashing that's happened. Um, you know, you have to go back 30 to 40 years, you know, starting with the 80s and, and uh, you know, a movement that started with, uh, Ronald Reagan in the states, and and then you know went worldwide. And Margaret Thatcher, and and this this uh, mantra, this unceasing mantra of cut taxes, cut taxes, cut taxes, and that's been the mantra for you know well over thirty years now, and that's been the mantra in Canada at the federal and the provincial level, and so you've seen this constant drumbeat of uh, reducing taxes. Taxes now become a dirty word. Um, there's nobody who's going to stand up and champion uh, taxes and the good of taxes and why we pay taxes and why they're necessary because they've been demonized. And, um, you know, the problem is that, uh, you know, there's a cost to that. And, and then ultimately, you know, in some cases, those costs then end up being higher. You know, when you talk about things being higher, you know, taxes perceived to be higher, well, in a lot of cases, that's because it filters down to the municipal level where they have to be the safety net and end up paying for things that really should have been paid for in the first place by the federal or provincial governments. And they're trying to clean up the mess. And then you've got charities then becoming the sort of safety valve uh, for all of that. And I don't think that's the way it's supposed to be. And one way or the other, it's getting paid for. The question is, should it be paid for by a very small group of well-heeled people or people that just want to do good and give money, or should it be paid by all of us? Yeah, you know, and, and look, there, there are people absolutely who are going to agree with everything you just said. There are others, I think, who are going to say, look, uh, I have no objection to paying taxes. I would just simply prefer that the government don't try to be all things to all people with a lot of expensive, superfluous programs, and let's concentrate on the stuff like roads and like hospitals and like education that are essential, and then we wouldn't be having these issues. Yeah, but, uh, you know, I think what people should be concerned about is, is, you know, they should ask themselves the question, is this just the thin edge of the wedge? I mean, uh, you, you know, when you see hospital equipment, I mean, MRI machines and, and CT scanners, I mean, those aren't luxuries. I mean, that's, those are things that help fix people's health. And when you're seeing those things having to be paid for out of charities, when you see homeless shelters or hospices or food banks or affordable housing units being funded by charity. The question that's worrisome is, is this just the thin edge of the wedge? At what point do we get, you know, where <laughs> road maintenance or bridge maintenance mm. becomes, you know, this bridge, uh, you know, is, is 
paid for by the Kiwanis Club. You know, and yeah. is that really the way we want to be uh, funding society? Clean water. I mean, are these things that we want to just keep offloading onto charities? I mean, I know it sounds ridiculous, but... Well, no, know, Kramer adopted a section of the highway in Seinfeld, <laughs> so, you know, you could see that happening. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, and, and, you know, Steve, I mean, something else about this that comes to mind immediately, and I had to look this up today to get the exact number, but bec- in Ontario alone, our debt and our deficit right now, because of government spending, is so high that we're spending a billion dollars a month just to pay interest on the amount that we owe. I mean, there's a lot of digital imaging and other things we could do with a billion dollars a month dumped into the healthcare system. So, I I mean, it's, it's a chicken and egg. You got to somehow get out of that, but until you do get out of that, that's a lot of money just being flushed down the toilet. Yeah, but you're absolutely right. And, you know, but this is the, the sort of the hole that you get into when you, you know, have this cut taxes mentality, and then you find yourself without any of the resources that you need to right the ship. And no politician in this day and age is going to stand up and say, you know what, I think what we need, I think we need people to pay more taxes. You know, that may be the reality, that may be exactly what's necessary, but any politician that tried to stand up and say that today would get booed off the stage. Uh, No, you're absolutely right on that point. Um, You point out one of the things, there's many things, and people absolutely have to read this piece. It's a very well done piece, and it's a very thought-provoking piece. Again, it's called Giving Until It Hurts, Offloading Health and Social Services onto Hamilton Charitable Organizations. is at thespec.com right now. Uh, You point out, uh, among other things, the fact that Hamilton is a, is a, a catchment area for a much wider net medically. So we service people in this city from Niagara all the way to Mississauga. And so we are responsible to have hospital facilities based largely or based in a lot, large measure on charitable giving that we have to give to. But if you live in Mississauga or you live in Niagara, chances are, if you want to give to charity, you're going to think, oh, I'm going to give to something close to home in my neighborhood, which puts us in a uniquely difficult position here in this city. Absolutely. And so, and it's not nothing against those outlying communities who, you know, use the facilities in Hamilton. They have their own hospitals that are trying to raise money. So, again, it's this dog-eat-dog world. And also, you know, Hamilton is not just a catchment area uh, in terms of being a regional health center. But in some ways, Hamilton has also become sort of an unofficial catchment area uh, for people who are suffering from you know, social problems as well. So if you live in, you know, some of the surrounding wealthier communities um, and you have, you know, let's say uh, severe schizophrenia or something that that requires you to now live on ODSP, well, you're not going to be able, in in a lot of cases, you may not be able to afford to live in those communities. So what happens? You migrate to Hamilton. Well, you migrate to Hamilton because uh, this is the regional place. This is where programs are. This is where supports are. And this is where... In, you know, up until recently, the rents were much cheaper, and so this is really the only place that you could afford to be. So, so Hamilton is really getting penalized uh, in a multitude of ways for this. And again, that just makes the pressures all that much greater on those who do have to do the giving, because they're now required to do the giving. Well, certainly. And I mean, it it makes sense then. It's a logical track that says that those who live in, if you live in a wealthier area where wealthier people live, who are going to be the ones giving, those areas are going to, if we follow the same logic, have better hospitals, better facilities, and poorer areas who don't have people who can give are going to have poorer facilities. Right. I mean, 
really, this is, these are decisions that should really be made by a central government organization, i.e. the Ministry of Health. They should be the ones figuring out how to make sure that it's a level playing field um, across the province. You know, we, we, we always worry about, uh, you know, two-tier healthcare system and you know every time that's raised there's all of you know we don't want that we don't want that we don't want people to be able to jump the line because they can pay well what's happening here is that by stealth we're ending up with a two-tier healthcare system because we have some places that can afford to have better equipment or be better stocked with equipment than other places by nothing more than the fact that they have better or wealthier donors that can allow them to purchase that that equipment and uh, you know Again, it, it's a fairness issue, and it raises, the again, the question of why isn't this something that is the responsibility of all of us? You've written that the, uh, what this, the, the launching point for this is the purchase of this $270 million diagnostic imaging equipment that has to be purchased. Do we know, are they going to raise that much? Are they going to be able to get the money to do that? Do we know? Well, uh, all HHS has said so far is that, um, you know, they're going to, have to take the money out of their uh, from their foundation, which is uh, you know their their charitable arm, and then if possible, they may have to try to carve it out of uh, capital and and operating budgets. But I mean, really, that's just you know how far how far more into the bone do you want to cut? Because you know capital and operating budgets at hospitals, um, you know, have been you know kept pretty threadbare. Uh, for a number of years now, and, and as Rob McIsaac mentioned to me, they haven't really even kept up with inflation. So, you know, really, you're, you're trying to scrounge money for, for things, and, you know, that's going to take a big whack out of their, uh, their foundation's uh, charitable pot, so to speak, you know, and, and that's money for, uh, that could be put aside for, say, if they needed a new hospital. Because there's another thing that, you know, people don't realize, which is that Hospitals themselves, you know, the actual buildings of a hospital aren't fully funded by the health ministry. Um, according to Rob McIsaac, you know, about a third of the cost of a hospital has to be raised by the community, i.e. fundraising. And, I mean, hospitals aren't cheap. And, you know, that's a staggering amount of money, again, that's coming out of a very specific pool of money. Mm. Well, one more thing before I let you go. We often hear from people, it's a... It's a um it's a phrase that we hear now and again, which is tax the rich. If you're making more money, you should pay more. And again, there are lots of people that feel that that's a very fair way for things to be. If they are able to raise $270 million or find that money from charities, most of that, I would think much of that would be coming from the well-heeled. Is not this then just becoming a voluntary tax on the rich? They're giving it, but it's they're giving their money, which is that it, does it not accomplish the same thing as if we were just going to tax the rich? Yeah, with one important difference, though. In this case, it's the rich that decide, A, how much they want to be taxed, if that's the way you want to look at it, and B, where they want to direct that. You know, when you pay your taxes normally to the federal government or the provincial government or your municipal government, you don't have the ability to say, uh, well, I want it to go to, you know, uh, a school in Ancaster because that's where I live, or I want it to, you know, I want it to go to this program but not this program because I don't really like those people over there. And so, yeah, you're right, uh, you know, that's why I say it's getting paid for somehow, it's just not getting paid for in a very equitable way. And sure, you know, again, it's nice that the well-heeled donors want to put up that money, but they're putting it up for the things that they choose that they want to put it into. 
not something that might be the need for all the people of the province of Ontario. It's a great story. It's a fascinating piece. It's a good think piece. Whether Whichever side on this you stand, it is well worth reading it and, uh, and giving it some thought. Giving Until It Hurts, Offloading Health and Social Services onto Hamilton Charitable Organizations. It's at thespec.com right now. It's by Steve Bust. Uh, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Thank you, Scott, as always. Uh, that is, uh, give it a read. I mean, look, we, we always try to encourage, uh, whether you agree with Steve or disagree, it's, it's good to broaden your mind and, and have something that makes you think. And if you disagree, think about why you disagree. If you agree, think about why you agree. But have a thought behind it. Give it some thought. And it's a fascinating thing that a lot of people, I certainly had no concept that this stuff, this medical equipment was coming from charity, charity more than anywhere else. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode and also be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.